Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm outstanding. 83 of the most glorious weeks in the history of the professional wrestling industry, I might add. Well, let's recycle some bullshit and talk about Hog Wild 1990. Oh, damn, I can't wait to talk about how we're going to be talking about some fat chicks. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, I don't even know where to go from here. Let's get to it, man. August 10th, 1990. <laughs> Table for one. Um, Hog Wild, August 10th, 1996. Sturgis, South Dakota. The show does a buy rate of 0.62. You guys are coming off of arguably the most important moment in WCW, or for that matter, one of the most important moments in wrestling history. Bash of the Beach 96, which we have covered with the infamous turn of Hulk Hogan, where he became a bad guy for the very first time. And man, ratings are off to the races. Uh, WCW is climbing in a big way. Um, millions of people are watching Monday Night Nitro, and you guys are pretty routinely beating Raw in the process. In July, on July 8th, you got a 3.5, and Raw got a 2.5. Um, the next week it was 3.4 to 2.6. The next week it was down a little bit, but you still won 2.6 to 2.2. We round out July on the 29th with nitro at a 3.1 raw at a 2.1. And you're cruising into August. As we head to this show, more wins, a three to a 2.8. And then of course we know that a couple of days after this show, Raw's only going to get a two and Nitro gets a 3.3. So you're just trucking Monday night raw. You've got to be feeling pretty good about your decision to turn Hulk Hogan heel here at this point. Right? Yeah. Uh, although, you know, looking back at it and, and, tr and trying to remember how we all felt, I think uh, even though it was only, you know, a couple weeks, really had gone by since the, the, the big event. And, and now we're into August. It seemed like we'd already spent six months doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, it wasn't like we were still riding high off of bash at the beach. It, you know, that was a big moment. And, and look, we had a lot of big moments and we had a lot of momentum going into that. It, it wasn't like, when I say that, I mean, bash at the beach. So we had some great TV. We knew we had great story, we were confident in the direction we were going, you know, once the reveal of the third man came uh, clearly, you know, that it was evident that it was a good call and we had the momentum, but we'd, we'd had pretty good momentum going into that bash at the beach pay-per-view. So it wasn't like it was fresh in, or, or new to us. It felt great, but we, we'd already had that great feeling about turning Hulk Hogan heel a month before. So now we were just riding on this energy that the NWO created and it was new to us. You know, I have said this before. I'll say it again and I'll probably repeat this many, many times as long as I'm doing things like this. The NWO was an idea, a concept that was loosely created probably a year before that all came together because of a coincidental you know, because of coincidence and timing, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash being available, all of a sudden that dovetailed into 
the idea that I that I wanted to try to create for a more a realistic kind of a storyline and and changing the paradigm of the way storytelling was was being presented, it all just kind of fit together. So much of it was coincidental. It, it wasn't like I was sitting in a room and creating this master plan that I knew was going to be hugely successful. Some of it was just fucking coincidence. Some of it was just good luck. Some of it was a great idea. It was a combination of all of the above. So by the time we got to to uh, Hog Wild, I think we were all in this phase of like, oh my gosh, we've got this massive opportunity now. You know, all these things that we've been doing since really May of, of that year had been really, you know, we we were hitting on you know seven out of eight cylinders, seemingly almost not making any mistakes. And now we've got this new thing. How do we maximize it? Right. So it, it wasn't so much just going back to your question. It wasn't so much, wow, Hulk Hogan's your heel. This is awesome. It was like, oh, my God, all of these things we've been doing for the last three or four months have been working. Now what do we do? Because it was new territory for all of us. Well, I can't wait to beat you up for this decision. Um you're a dick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Why do you that. get so much joy out of beating? God, it's a Saturday afternoon. I'm in Orlando. I met some great wrestling fans. I got to hang out, hang out with Scott and Kevin. By the way, Scott's doing great. I, I just want to say this in all seriousness. I am so proud of Scott Hall. I watched him today for four hours, signing autographs and meeting people. And I am just so proud of him for how he's turned his life around and he loves meeting fans. He treats everybody with respect. He almost doesn't want them to leave, you know, when it's time for someone else to come along in line and get an autograph signing. He's he's that engaging, and he's really turned his life around. I just want to put him over for that and acknowledge that because it's it's a pretty cool thing to see. All right, go on. No, that's awesome. Kick, I mean, I kick feel- my ass. Go ahead, kick my ass. <laughs> well, it's just weird, you know that. We've got all this momentum. What do we do with it? I know let's go to a fucking biker rally. Like this is obviously a plan you guys had in mind before. So let's just jump into it. When does the idea and how does the idea for Sturgis come to be? Because one of the criticisms that people have heard for years and years, and I'm sure you're going to poke all kinds of holes in this and I'm ready for it is that this was basically you know, a way for Eric Bischoff to fund his hobby. He, he fancied himself a motorcycle man, and this would be an opportunity for him to, you know, drink beer and hang out with his buddies and be one of the boys and ride a hog to Sturgis. And I'm sure you're going to say, no, that wasn't it. This is what it was. So what was it? You're wrong again. I'm not going to say, no, that's not what that was. This is what it was. I'm going to tell you, though, that the idea to go to Sturgis started in, I think the idea came to me probably the right after the first of the year um, because we were increasing the number of pay-per-views that we were doing. It became really obvious to me that each pay-per-view had to have their own personality. Right. And 
you know, Bash at the Beach had its personality. Starcade had a personality. Halloween Havoc had a personality. I, I looked at these pay-per-view events as characters right. because we were asking people to drop 40 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever the price point was at the time. We're asking people to invest in these events because they felt unique. They felt different than Nitros. Now, keep in mind, I had made the decision, you know, starting in 95 to really put pay-per-view quality matches on free TV, right? Right. So I was kind of forcing myself to elevate the pay-per-views in a new way. And I looked at WWF and, and you know, realized that, you know, they've got Royal Rumble, you know, in, in, in television, they call them tent pole events, which are your, your, your primary events that really prop up your entire tent. They had Royal Rumble. Obviously they had WrestleMania survivor series, you know, King of the ring. They had four or five primary tent pole events. And, and the rest of the, the pay-per-view events that WWE was doing or WWF at the time were more or less a secondary pay-per-views. And I looked at WCW, and other than Halloween Havoc and Bash at the Beach, um, and maybe you know, and maybe Starcade and Starcade. No, I was just going to say, and Starcade, we didn't really have events that had that kind of legacy and and history to them. So I I, I believed in probably six months, eight months before we you know actually produced Sturgis, that we had to create personalities and characters. So that was one one element that went into the process. And as a part of that process, as we've talked about before, the biggest challenge for WCW was, you know, a lot of our destiny was in the hands of ad sales, Turner, Turner ad sales in New York. We had to get our ad sales numbers up because we were delivering big numbers. You know, you just rattled off, you know, our ratings at that point, but we couldn't sell those. We, we couldn't sell those ratings. People advertisers, st- we, we were doing a, th- we were outperforming the WWF in some cases by 30%, you know, on any given week, but they were but the yet, brand, right? I'm sorry, but they were the brand, right? Everybody knew, but they them. were the, they were the brand. That's what everybody knew. And we had to figure out a way to get advertisers and sponsors. We, we had to attract them to our product. Now, Having lived in Minnesota for a long time, you know, prior prior to this, I was well aware of Sturgis. You know, I've been riding a Harley since I was 22 years no, 20, 20 years old is when I bought my first Harley Davidson, um, bought a Super Glide, and I've, I've always, you know, I've always ridden motorcycles since the time I was a little kid. I I had a motorcycle before I got my driver's license. Um, I was 14 years old. I had a Honda 305 Superhawk that I drove to work without a driver's license. So I've, I've literally been driving motorcycles almost all of my life. And as a result of that, I, you know, I was well aware of Sturgis. I had heard all the stories about Sturgis. And I knew that, you know, advertisers like Dodge, you know, Chevy, Ford, all your major, you know, truck manufacturers, um, Every alcohol known to man, whether it's Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, Coors Miller Light Bud, whatever, you know, every major advertiser that was targeting men 18 to 34 were spending a fortune in Sturgis. It was an event. It was like Mardi Gras. And I thought, well, what a better way to marry our brand 
WCW and Monday Nitro and and attract average because nobody else had ever done it before. Nobody else had ever produced a live wrestling event at, at this level in Sturgis. So back in January, February, when the idea first came to me, I thought, well, fuck, this will make a great idea. This is a great pay-per-view. I knew we'd be eating it on the live gate. I knew we wouldn't be able to sell tickets, but you know, on a, on a, on a great pay-per-view, if you do a quarter of a million dollars in ticket sales, you know, that is a blip uh, on the radar compared to what you could make over the course of an entire 12 month window with an advertiser like Dodge trucks or Chevy or Harley Davidson or Jack Daniels or somebody else. So the decision was made to, you know, my, I made the decision to, to try to put that event together. And we started that process probably in February is when I first started making calls. And David Crockett and I actually went out to Sturgis because we had to meet with the mayor. We had to meet with the city council. We had to meet with the local police department um, and the mayor. I mean, we, 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 we met with a lot of people to convince them that, you know, us coming out there and putting on a pay-per-view in Sturgis was a good idea. So that, that process started back in, oh, I know it started, hell, I was there in March because I remember I drove out there, um, from Minneapolis and it was like four feet of snow on the ground. So I would say it was probably March when I had my first initial meetings with, uh, with, you know, local law enforcement and local politicians in Sturgis. I realize it's a totally different situation, but I can't help but think about a little, some of the parallels between the way you did bash at the beach 95 on the actual beach outside. And then this year you decide now we're going to bring it to Daytona. It's going to be inside. Maybe we'll replace this outdoor spectacle of an event. And instead of doing it on the beach, we'll do it with Sturgis. Is that fair to say? No, that wasn't, that wasn't a part of the process. I mean, look, had I, if there would have been a venue available for us to do it indoors at Sturgis, I would have probably opted for that. And I would have probably tried to cover, you know, the vibe and the feel, you know, with a lot of vignettes and outdoor shots and aerials and a lot of, you know, interstitials and things like that to kind of bring in the vibe of Sturgis. But th- the fact was that there just, you know, there was no venue available. So it was just, I had made up my mind. I wanted to do a pay-per-view at Sturgis. There was no indoor venue available. So by default, we were going to be outdoors. I can't help, but I uh, ask this then. Why didn't you do bash at the beach 96 outdoors? If you really wanted every show to sort of have their own identity, you had done bash, uh, bash at the beach, 95 outs outdoors. Why not do it outdoors for 96? The doing it, doing an event outdoors is always more costly. Sure. I think we opted in, in 96 to go indoors for a variety of reasons, cost being one of them, especially weather in Florida in the summertime is exceptionally hard to predict. Um, you get lucky every once in a while, but it's a 50, 50 proposition. I, I, I just think with bash at the beach in, in 96, we didn't want to risk it. So let's talk about what you did risk. You risked a house here because one of the ideas of doing a show like this is that you're not going to be able to charge for tickets and. Based on what you've said so far, it does make me think that maybe part of the strategy is let's make it look as big as we can. And we'll, what we'll make way more money on the ad sales throughout the course of the year than whatever the gate would have been for some random pay-per-view. Sorry. Was that a question? Yeah. I was hoping you would respond to 
the criticism because a traditional wrestling promoter is, is the way most fans who are listening to this sort of wear their hat and they say, Oh, he did this. And there wasn't even any money at the gate. So he's a mark for himself or whatever. No, no, no. And it, look, and I know, you know, first of all, I, you know, we, we've, I, I've heard you, you know, kind of preface questions like this before about, well, you know, traditionally a wrestling promoter would do this or, you know, a traditional promoter would have done that. I, I wasn't doing anything like a traditional wrestling promoter. The, the, the very fact that we went head to head with, with, with Monday night raw was not something a traditional wrestling promoter would, would have done. Everything that I did, everything about nitro was counterintuitive to what a quote unquote tra- traditional, you know, backward thinking um, wrestling promoter would have done or television producer in wrestling would have done. That's what got Nitro over. I, I've said this before. The formula for Nitro and, and the pay-per-views that, that were part of that, that, that formula was to be as different than every way I could possibly be than the WWF. That shouldn't be news to anybody. So, yeah, I went to Sturgis. I went to Sturgis. It was a very tactical – it was a strategic and tactical choice. Strategic in the sense that I knew that if WCW was going to survive and grow, it had to attract a broader base of advertisers. We could no longer just be the bottom feeders that were taking the, you know, $2 CPMs from, you know, M&M Mars who were paying for eyeballs. They didn't care who was watching it. They were just, they were giving you, you know, bottom feeder prices as long as you could prove that you were actually, you know, reaching, you know, households. That was traditionally, you know, WCW's ad sales market. For us to get to a point where we were getting $3, $4, and $5 CPMs, which were, you know, certainly not prime. You know, prime would have been $10 and $12 and $14 CPMs. Cost per thousand is what that stands for. But for WCW to kind of break out of that bottom feeder category that we had lived in since the beginning of WCW television time, we had to be attractive to bigger higher profile advertisers who had to see that our product resonated with the audience in a much different way because we were doing different things. We weren't doing the WWF. If you go back and look at the WWF's content at that time in 96, they were still doing kitty shit. They were still doing Duke the dumpster drozy and every character was a garbage man or an IRS agent and it was still silly kitty shit. We had to do something different. And going to Sturgis and aligning ourselves with some of the major advertisers that were investing tens of millions of dollars in Sturgis, um, to me, made strategic and tactical sense. So, yes, was I willing to give up a $200,000 gate or a $300,000 gate in order to make long-term inroads with national advertisers? It was a risk, and I decided to take it. But it had nothing to do with, I just wanted to go ride a hog with my buddies and drink beer. That's just childish, ignorant um, well, garbage. It was, it's garbage that, that probably sounded good in a dirt sheet. Well, I, I don't know that it's necessarily garbage because it does it. it I mean, it is a, a show you're going to lose money on. I mean, you, you're, you're going to perhaps make money in a, on the long run, but you're running an event here that you're writing checks at the end of the night that you can't cover unless the pay-per-view comes in really, really strong or ad sales come down the road. So 
to run an event in the red is obviously going to be within question. We didn't, we didn't run an event in the red. You're making a giant leap. Who, who, who in the world is, is suggesting that we lost money on that pay-per-view? Okay. Tell us how you made money producing the live event. Cause there's no ticket sales. And you just said it's very, it's much more expensive to produce an event outdoors than in, uh, you're paying everyone to be there. You've got production out the ass. You've got a helicopter full time. We made the money off pay-per-view the pay-per-view. We were profitable. We weren't as profitable. Our margin wasn't as high as it possibly could have been with an additional $200,000 in ticket sales. But what we accomplished was or what we were hoping to accomplish was far more valuable that was the that was the business decision going to a place like Sturgis and targeting advertisers who were also targeting Sturgis with a product that was completely you know from from an ad ad sales point of view was a complete fit made a lot more sense so you know instead of making you know, $5 million, whatever the number is, because I, 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 there's no way I'm going to be able to recall it off the top of my head. But whatever the revenue was that was generated off of pay-per-view, yeah, we made about $200,000 less than we would have otherwise. But we were beginning to engage advertisers that we otherwise would not have engaged. And that was the, that was the decision, and it was worth it. Tell us what advertisers you landed as a result of this strategy. Uh, I think the the first one that actually began to materialize for us was a uh, it was actually Coca Cola, Surge. They came out with a new product. Uh, I think the year after, approximately, and that's when I first started having conversations. Shortly thereafter, with Coca Cola. Well, that's awesome. I mean, uh, that's a big that's a big get. So good for you guys. You know, it is curious that no other wrestling promotion had the vision to do it the way you did it here. Uh, it, but the, the ad revenue concept is super interesting to me because you, you referenced a number a minute ago that I couldn't help, but circle back to, and I'm sure a lot of people think this is not interesting at all, but you referenced Mars as doing a $2 CPM. And I'm glad you explained for people who don't buy advertising. That means cost per thousand. But at a $2 CPM, that means you're paying $2 for every 1,000 people who are watching your program. So let's just freestyle. How many people do you think were watching Nitro in 1996? Oh, I mean, this is obviously off the top of my head. But if, I mean, you started this podcast out talking about a three rating. So let's just say we did a a three rating on a Monday night, a three rating at that time would have represented about just under 3 million households. And typically the Nielsen formula would have suggested that there was like 1.5 people per household. So you're probably looking at about four and a half million eyeballs. Um, If you could sell that, at a $2 CPM, Nine you know, grand. do the math. $9,000 is what a commercial would have costed at a $2 CPM. Does that sound right to you that Mars would have ran a spot in nitro for only nine grand? Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. 
You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. I mean, I'm telling you, that's what the math was. You know, I wasn't selling ad ad sales. Ad sales didn't report to WCW. We never got any, you know, monthly um, information from ad sales. So I can't speak for the ad sales department, but I can tell you what I know and what I recall. What I recall was Eminem Mars, which was, you know, had been for many years. When I say bottom feeder, that's a, you know, it sounds disparaging, but they, they were the, they were buying eyeballs. They didn't care if it was 60 year olds watching, two year olds watching, men watching, women watching, you know, they didn't care. If you could prove to them that you were delivering households, they would buy your number, but they would buy it at a severely discounted rate, which I believe was around $2 a thousand. So you can just do the math. And if the math says $9,000 an ad, then that's probably what it was going for. But I, I wasn't selling the ad time at the time, so I can't, you know, live or die on that information. Do you remember a number? Cause you threw $2 out really quickly. Do you remember the highest CPM that Nitro would have collected or during your entire run? I really don't. I, again, we weren't selling it. We we got no reporting. Sure. We got no accounting. And I only know that the Mars, quite honestly, I knew the, Ars, the, the Mars number um, from before I got to WCW because that was one of the advertisers that, you know, the AWA was one of the only ones the AWA was able to get with their ESPN show. Um, they, when, when, AWA had ESPN at three o'clock. It was three o'clock central time. So probably uh, four o'clock Eastern time, Monday through Friday, Eminem Mars was buying, you know, AWA at somewhere around a buck 80 or $2 a thousand. You know, I can't help, but follow up since you said you didn't get reports from ad sales companies, but we started this conversation by saying I could forfeit the gate because I was chasing ad sales. I don't really jive, does it? No, it does. If you listen to it carefully and, and, and yeah, it does drive our job. And by the way, we were also looking for sponsors, not just ad sales because ad sales had to go through New York. When I say New York, I mean, uh, Turner ad sales based in New York. That was, we had, we had absolutely nothing to do, even though we wanted to have something to do with ad sales, how it was sold, where it was sold, what we could do, but sponsorship was different. For example, Slim Jim was a deal that I initiated through the relationship I had with Randy and bringing Randy in that sponsorship, not only included 
ad sales as a component, but it was driven primarily about the in-program content that we were creating for Slim Jim with Randy. That that sponsorship money came directly to WCW. It didn't come through the ad sales division. So that money ended up on my books first before it was filtered through ad sales and commissioned. And we had complete control in it. So I was looking for sponsors like Slim Jim, whether it be Chevy Ford, Dodge, Jack Daniels, Budweiser, Miller Coors, whatever. I was looking for those dollars to bring in a sponsorship supported by ad sales as opposed to coming through the New York ad sales office and us getting whatever you know was left over. So let's talk about where business is overall. Uh, business is way up uh, in attendance. We're up 38% from August of 95 to August of 96. When I say way up though, we're still only at 2,492 fans, not nearly what it would be in 97. And of course in 98, uh, but July is also way, way up. So we're seeing month over month growth here. And I feel like it's worth mentioning that the average gate as a result of these ticket sales is up 54%. So an incredible amount of growth here. And, and even in the television ratings in August of 95, a 1.9 is the average in August of 96, it's a 2.3. So huge jumps. And even year over year, there's still a little bit of growth with pay-per-view, but maybe not as much. Let's talk a little bit about though, the, um, the concept for Hogwild and how maybe it changed, because this is one of the most obvious questions that people ask why it changed from Hogwild to Roadwild. If I had to venture a guess, it had something to do with Harley Davidson, but I'll let you take it from here. Yeah. I mean, you, you know. You took my heat. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Way to go, Conrad. Why even bother answering the question if you're going to answer it first? Um, how did they deliver the, I mean, did you guys get a cease and desist or? Yeah, for the most part, it came right to our marketing department. And, you know, Harley Davidson is a very um, sophisticated company when it comes to their trademarks. I mean, really, really sophisticated. I think other than the WWF or WWE, um, I can't think of anybody who's more aggressive about protect, or at least then protecting their trademarks. But shortly after we came out, you know, with our advertising, we've got a, a, a cease and desist and, you know, we, we resolved it, you know, by changing up logos and things like that and promised never to do it again, which is why it became road wild subsequently. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was a trademark issue with, with Harley Davidson and we didn't want to fight it. And, and honestly, we didn't, because of the nature of the event and because of all of the other, because of the politics involved with Sturgis, and there was a lot of it, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, having to sit down with the mayor and the city council and the chief of police. And I mean, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to, to pull that event off, you know, going back to March, you know, prior to that event, um, getting sideways with Harley Davidson was just not a good idea for us. So we, we acquiesced immediately and made the changes we needed to make. So did they hit you before the event had happened and you had to sort of just temper what you had already pushed out or did you come to some yes. sort of, okay. Yeah. We, we, there, there was logos that had to be changed because, you know, they didn't want us to use hog because hog is if you, if you're a Harley Davidson owner, if you go out and buy a new Harley Davidson t tomorrow, um, you'll you'll be invited to uh, join a 
basically a club called the Harley Owners Group or Hog, which is a trademark part of Harley Davidson. So they they their position was Hog as it related to a motorcycle event, especially one in, in Sturgis. Um, was confusingly similar, <laughs> my favorite trademark term, confusingly similar to the Harley-Davidson trademarks as it related to Harley Owners Group, which they marketed as Hog. So and we, had, we had to make subsequent changes. And as someone who had owned a Harley since he was 20, you probably knew about this group, but didn't think this would be a big deal or, and this is no, 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 no. That's a, that's a good assumption, but no, that's not true. You know, the Harleys that I'd owned, um, I, I never bought a new one. always bought them used. I didn't know anything about the Harley owners group because I had never bought a new Harley Davidson until long after that, uh, first event. But uh, no, I didn't know that as a matter of fact, did you name, uh, this show Hogwild, or was that somebody in the marketing department? No, that was marketing. And that was, you know, probably a group of people coming up with different ideas and presenting them to, to me and other people. And, and I approved it. It would have, you know, it would have been my call. So the buck stopped with me, oh, but yeah. I, I didn't come up with it. I just, I, I would have approved looking, it. I wasn't looking to browbeat you there. I was just curious if you had named it since you were the motorcycle guy. It, it, it looks like when you see, the poster for this event and you see the VHS cover that this was probably this creative was probably done in like April, uh, because you've got Hulk Hogan on a red and yellow bike. He's red and yellow himself. He's got his weight belt span around to where it says Hulkster on, on the front, uh, at the top, it says Hogan plus Savage plus sting plus Luger plus flair. There's no NWO. There's no black and white. There's no mention of the outsiders. Hogan's not a bad guy. None of that. And the tagline at the bottom is ain't no easy riders here. So it's pretty easy to see that this was done ahead of time. Is there not an opportunity to pivot and correct some of this stuff? Or do you just have to sort of ride it out? And even when you push out the VHS, no, you just have to write it out. No, I'm not sure about the VHS. There may have been an opportunity to correct there because that wasn't as time sensitive. But that was one of the challenges with pay-per-views back then. I don't know what it's like now, but we were under always under a lot of pressure. Now, it was the source of a lot of conflict internally because, and in, in, in fairness to the people like Mike Weber and Sharon Sadello and the people who were, you know, charged with the responsibility of maximizing the amount of ad support that we could get from cable providers, you know, cable systems who are pushing pay-per-views at the local level, whether it was DirecTV or Dish or whoever it was that was, you know, selling it on the national level or promoting it at the national level. All of those um, partners, if you will, whether it's local cable systems or the national cable provider, all of them required that we had our artwork in three months in advance, sometimes longer. And, you know, there was always a constant fight. Well, we need to know the name on the card. No, you don't. You got to, you, you need to learn how to promote the event, not the card. And because cards are subject to change, people get hurt. Contracts become an issue. Storylines change. You know, you, it was just too difficult to absolutely market a, a pay-per-view based solely on the card and the creative because so many things we, we were forced to change. That's another reason why it was important 
that the pay-per-views had personalities of themselves. So when you went to Bash at the Beach, it had a vibe. It had a theme. It had a history. When you go to Halloween Havoc, it had a vibe. It had a theme. It had a history. Just like Royal Rumble did, even though there was a format associated with Royal Rumble. You know, WrestleMania still does. You know that that's the World Series of Wrestling pay-per-views. You don't really care who's on the card, in all fairness. Sure, it helps, but you're going to buy WrestleMania. No matter who's in the main event, you're going to buy WrestleMania. And, and to, to your question, I guess, and, and to, hopefully to my point, is that was one of the big challenges. And that's why you saw in the advertising it was three or four months old because it was well before the turn. It was well before we knew for sure Hulk Hogan was going to turn. We were doing the artwork and creating the support materials for that pay-per-view in April long before I knew for sure Hulk Hogan was going to be the third guy. All right. So let's talk about some major news that's happening in wrestling. Um, the July 29th observer would read the FTC has basically approved the Turner time Warner merger. Boy, how big of a deal was that in hindsight? Well, in hindsight, it was the beginning of the end, but at that time, you know, we were all high-fiving each other. We didn't know any better. You know, and the one thing I do recall that I'm, I think is important here is I remember, and I honestly, I don't know who it was. It, it was somebody on the Turner side of business and it was a passing comment, which is, you know, it wasn't like a serious conversation. We were sitting down over a scotch, you know, at the, the Omni bar or anything like that. But it was somebody that I knew over on the Turner side that had been through acquisitions before. And he told me, he said, Eric, this is the beginning. No matter how good it sounds, trust me, a year from now, you're going to be wishing this never happened. And I remember hearing that, and I was, was like, well, that's a negative way to look at it. Because everything that I had been hearing up until that point was so positive. Right. You know, I, w- I was at a Christmas party, you know, six months prior at Terry McGurk's house. Terry McGurk was the the president of Turner Broadcasting at the time. He was Ted Turner's right-hand man at the time. Ted Turner was there. Jane Fonda was there. Gerald Levin was there. You know, and I was the token wrestling guy, my wife and I, Lori. And we went to, you know, we were, and this was a big deal. I mean, it wasn't a big party. These were like a very, the select of the select, you know, Turner executive people. And I was honored to be there and, and to get the invite. But I remember standing in Terry McGurk's, you know, living room as Gerald Levin and, and Ted Turner were toasting. And, and Gerald Levin, you know, t- telling everybody in the room, saying, you know, this is such an amazing merger because, you know, you've got the entrepreneurial spirit uh, of what's made Turner Broadcasting such a phenomenal company, company, which, by the way, was fucking true. It was right on the money. I mean, Ted Turner was the he was the the maverick of all mavericks. He was the vision visionary of all visionaries, and he had that. You know, take as many risks as you need to take. Just make sure you, you know you win more than you lose. He just had that entrepreneurial spirit that trickled down through throughout the entire company. And Gerald Levin says, now you've got the entrepreneurial spirit and drive of Turner Broadcasting merging with one of the most sophisticated media companies in the world. And I was like five feet away holding my scotch and water going, fuck yeah, damn straight. You know, at the time for me, 
you know, I was, I was feeling pretty good about where WCW was, what my role was, the, the progress we were making, the ideas that we had, the support that we had, you know, at that time. So I, I was on top of the world. So when I, you know, six months later, a year later, this or six months, eight months later, this guy says, nah, it's not going to be that good. Be careful. A year from now, you're going to hate this. And I remember thinking to myself, man, you're just so negative. You're just so negative. But, you know, a year after that, I was thinking, God, was he right? <laughs> what a what a bunch of horseshit. Well, and it happened right around this same time. Um, and around this time, I guess we should mention one of the biggest blackouts in American history happened about an hour right before this pay-per-view was supposed to start. It was all over California and a lot of states on the West coast or nine or so lost power. And of course that means they can't order the pay-per-view. When did you hear about this blackout and how this might affect business? Because when you're losing a, you know, a giant chunk of your potential pay-per-view audience here due to some sort of, I don't know, act of God, this is a weird deal. And this could potentially be devastating for the bottom line, right? Yeah. I mean, we didn't hear about, I didn't hear about it till well into the show, but at that point, you know, whatever, I mean, what can you do? Yeah. (laughs) Nothing, nothing I'm going to do about it. I can't fix it. There's, there's absolutely nothing I can do, but continue doing the show that we, we planned on doing and hoping for the best. And it kind of went in here. What it went in one ear and out the other. Cause I was more concerned about the things I had control over than the things I didn't. One of the things you had control over, or so we thought was bringing in Sean Waltman. Meltzer would write the fourth member of the NWO was scheduled to debut on this card. And it was Sean Waltman. However, Titan says they have yet to send him his legal contractual release. And after doing so with the belief, they were simply screwing with WCW Waltman wound up at the show and ready to do whatever, but WCW wouldn't allow him on the show without the written release. So allegedly they've given him a verbal and he thinks he's good to go, but you guys get cold feet. Is that the way you remember it going down? Well, see, it's interesting how you say cold feet. That would imply you're a chicken shit or you're insecure or you're not steadfast no, in your position. I didn't mean that. Our, Let me clarify. No, but but no, but no, but that's how it comes off, bro. That's how you get me hot. You're getting sued I'm, by them at this moment is the reason I would think you would have some sort of hesitation. They're suing you over Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and their intellectual property because they contend that you're really portraying them to be Diesel and Razor Ramon. So to me, that makes sense that you would just want to fucking be sure. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. There you go. There you go again. I was, I was about to say, <laughs> I was about to say that, but no, we were, uh, look, we were clearly by that point or by this point in, in, in this timeline, um, litigation was becoming a real issue. I think if it would have happened six months before we would have gone, fuck it, take the chance, wing it. But by this point we were on notice and it was, it was 
critical. You know, the, these were substantial threats and, you know, federal trademark issues and things like that. So legal wouldn't have allowed me to just wing it, even if I wanted to. But at that point, I realized it was stupid to do that. Is it fair to say that he would have been involved in that final angle that instead Brutus the fucking barber beefcake was, or what would the plans have been for him? Had that release come through? He would have been involved in it. It would clearly not have been Brutus the fucking barber beefcake, but you know, I had to wing it. So when you find out that this release is not coming, do you then just start looking around the locker room? Where's Brutus? Get a fucking airbrush t-shirt like you're in Panama City and get your ass out there with that birthday cake, bitch. And here's a great thing about that, Conrad, is if if you would have seen Brutus the fucking barber's beefcake wardrobe back then, everything was already fucking airbrushed. The guy didn't own a stitch of fucking clothing that didn't have an airbrush image on it. So that was easy. There was no wardrobe issue. We didn't have to rush out and find some fucking vendor selling corn dogs on one side of the building and, you know, airbrush stupid shit on the other. He already had it in his bag. Well, that's handy. Uh, so Meltzer sort of freestyles that the attendance was around 5,000, but Bobby Heenan is putting it over at around 30,000. If you had to venture guess, what would you say the attendance was? I would say 5,000 was being generous. I would say probably between 3,500, 4,500. Well, there you go. How about that? I didn't think we would, uh, we would have you go the other way on that. Thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about Bobby Heenan. It feels like a a bit of a sore subject and one people don't really want to talk about, but a lot of people contend that Bobby Heenan was drunk during this show. You watched it recently. What'd you think? I didn't, you know what? If he was, I, I didn't detect it and I wouldn't have been surprised if he was, I mean, it, Look, that event was an amazingly difficult event for a lot of reasons, especially for guys who just weren't really inclined <laughs> to want to, to be there in the first place. And some of us were. I mean, we had an amazing ride. We haven't talked about that at all. But the ride from Sturgis, you know, the camaraderie that we had developed, in, you know, again, context is king, as the shirt says. But, you know, WCW for so long had been – Number one, first and foremost, we were we were the redheaded bastard stepchild within Turner Broadcasting that nobody wanted to associate with. I mean, you'd have to be there to really appreciate what I'm saying here. But you know, to be an employee of Turner Broadcast, excuse me, to be an employee of WCW and Turner Broadcasting, and and to go down into the you know, the atrium or to go to eat in one of the restaurants and, and people would recognize you as a WCW person. You were a second or a third or fourth class citizen. Nobody in that entire company wanted you to be there or wanted your company to even be a part of Turner Broadcasting. So there was that, you just, you just felt unwanted and out of place. And, and from a wrestling talent point of view, you know, none of us were ever together very long. Even when Nitro first started, you know, kicking off, you know, we'd all come together and, you know, you do Nitro and maybe you'd get together in a, at the bar for an hour or two after the show. And then, boom, everybody would go their separate ways and you wouldn't see each other till the following week. There was no real camaraderie 
or, 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 or sense of, you know, team. So the idea of going to Sturgis, a, a small part of it, I don't want to say a big part of it because not everybody liked to ride, you know, but staying, you know, Ray trailer, Medusa, the Steiners, myself, um, Paul Orndorff, you know, a, a, a core group of key people really, really loved to ride. And none of us really socialized ever, save for a few, you know, an hour, hour and a half or whatever after a show somewhere. So the idea of us all getting together, getting on, and it wasn't just us who were riding motorcycles. There was a whole caravan of people that were following us along that, you know, weren't riders necessarily, but were following in their cars. And so there was a whole caravan of us out there that just took a road trip together. And the bonding that took place on that trip, going out to Sturgis, because none of us had ever been there before. That's the other thing that was really cool about it. You know, we'd all heard about it. We all heard all the crazy stories and, you know, hot naked chicks on Harleys driving through town and, you know, blowjob contests on the bus at the Buffalo Chip Campground. And, you know, you hear about all this crazy, you know, like Mardi Gras on steroids kind of stuff. And you you have this you know image of what it what it's going to be like, and then we all meet in Minneapolis at the Mall of America, and and literally drive. And I think it was only like about eight hours. You know, it took us two days. We spent the night halfway there, but the camaraderie that was developed along the way was freaking amazing. You know, and this was before the internet, before you know, over the top type of networks and things like that. But we documented so much of it. We had so much fun. We really, really had a blast. And I don't have a clue where this was going or what the question was you asked to preface this long winded <laughs> diatribe of that amazing journey to Sturgis. Well, I asked if Bobby Hayden was drunk and then it. Oh, okay. 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 So Bobby wasn't on the trip. Bobby wasn't one of those guys that wanted to, you know, bond and, and have fun two or three days on the way out there. Bobby got there and he, he was looking for a four-star hotel with a really, really cool bar that served great martinis. And you ain't going to find that shit in Sturgis. Sturgis is a down and dirty you know, if you go to Sturgis, well, right now, Sturgis is just about, they're gearing up for it right now. But if you go to Sturgis two weeks after Sturgis, it's a fucking ghost town. There's nothing there. Like, it's a town of about 8,000 people, 360 days a year. For five days a year, there's about 300,000 people there, and it's crazy. But the rest of the time, there ain't shit there. I mean, you might find a nice Days Inn or a Holiday Inn Suites or something like that. But Bobby was used to, you know, the, a nice Hyatt, you know, with a great seafood bar. <laughs> and they didn't have it. So for a guy like Bobby, who was used to kind of the fighter things in life, to be stuck in Sturgis where it was hot, fucking noisy. You're here at Harley's. You know, from 5.30 in the morning till 2 in the morning, you're hearing nothing but 250,000 motherfucking Harleys making more noise than you can imagine. You can't sleep. You can't relax. You can't find a place to sit down that's quiet and clean. It's just a little gritty. And I think it got to Bobby, to be honest. Let me ask you, did you ever hear of Bobby being drunk during the show? Or did you ever have to have a talk with Bobby about his drinking during shows? Uh, maybe no, no, I didn't. I heard about it after the fact, you know, it was, it was brought to me, but it, 
look, it was a different time. And I knew Bobby would have a cocktail or two before the show. So did Gene. Um, it never, it never got in the way of work. Um, so I did, you know, it wasn't an issue for me. We, you know, it was a different time. You know, the mid nineties were different than 2018. If it was today it would be a much different situation. But back then, if it didn't, if it didn't interfere with your work, you know, have a cocktail or two. I don't really give a shit. So let's talk about, uh, Tony Shivani because Tony Shivani and his attire here. It was fucking hideous. I mean, it was fucking hideous. I watched this. I'm going to go off on this for a second. Now, I love Tony. I haven't talked to Tony. I tried to call him the other day. He didn't call me back. He's being a little bitch or something. I don't know. But I still love him no matter what. But I looked at that. I'm looking at Dusty Rhodes in his cutoff jeans. My goodness. And 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 he's wearing cowboy boots and cutoff jeans. Who the fuck wears cowboy boots and cutoff jeans? Dusty Rhodes. And a leather hat. And a leather hat. And by the way. Dusty could pull it off. Tony, on the other hand, looked like he was wearing a fake mullet. Now, I don't know. I can't remember. I don't, I didn't pay attention to Tony's grooming patterns at that time, but he looked like he had really, really long hair, like a mullet, a silly hat and silly glasses. And he's wearing a little WCW jean vest, you know, with a WCW logo on it. And he just looks silly as fuck. <laughs> a fake tattoo. And a fake tattoo. Who wears fake tattoos? Come on. So here's my question. Who dressed him here? He did. My goodness. Probably Annette. I bet you Annette. Because he, you know, he and Annette were friends. I bet you Annette dressed him. What about uh, Mean Gene? What did you think of Mean Gene's look? He looked like a like of like of you porn was going to do a parody of a, of a biker rally with a dirty old porn star. It would be Gene Okerlund in that outfit. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love you for that. <laughs> oh, you gotta go see this. If you haven't watched it in a long time, just for the outfits. And one of the things that tickled me is you guys ran a commercial for that horrible fucking jacket. Like who bought that shit? I mean, you spent more money shooting that fucking promo with Jimmy Hart than you actually sold jackets. You had to. Yeah. Mike Weber loved that, man. That was a Mike Weber initiative. He was all over that. That was his, he, yep. Mike Weber. All right. Well, let's get to the show. Uh, the dark matches that night, public enemy beat Dick Slater and Mike Enos. They're airing a lot of this on Saturday night. Cause this show is not a Sunday pay-per-view. It's a Saturday pay-per-view. Uh, Conan beat Chavo Guerrero Jr. The Nasty Boys beat High Voltage. Alex Wright pinned Bobby Eaton. Kevin Sullivan Ming and the Barbarian beat Jim Powers, Mark Starr, and Joe Gomez. I'm sure that sold a lot of pay-per-views. Uh, David Taylor uh, beat Mr. JL. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page beat the Renegade. Arn Anderson beat Hugh Morris in 40 seconds. And then we start the actual pay-per-view. Lots of helicopter shots here, Eric. What do you think your helicopter budget was for this show? Had to be through the roof. I think it was it was under fifty grand. It's amazing. Uh, the first match is uh, a barn. What's, a, what's what's amazing about that? Well, you know, it's just 
you know, what, what's changed with technology, because what you had to spend for 50 grand to get those fucking shots, you could get for $1,500 now with a fucking drone and no shit. You could right? you could go to Best Buy and spend $800 and get a fucking drone that you could, you know, you could literally fly it into a fire when you were done with it. And you're right. You know, it was, it was amazing, but back then you had to do it with a helicopter. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying it's amazing. You know, that something <laughs> we can buy fucking 40 drones for that. And it looked great, but that wasn't a thing, but what was a thing. And thank you for this. I know I beat your ass up a lot here on the show, but this pay-per-view starts with Ray Mysterio jr. And as you guys like to call him ultimate dragon, uh, they go 11 minutes and 35 seconds. The fans are chanting USA, which I guess makes perfect sense here in Sturgis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they'd been drinking since eight o'clock in the morning. You got to forgive them. Three and three quarter stars. Mike Tanay was on commentary here. I really like this match, but I love these guys. And what a hot way to start the show. What'd you think when you watched it back for the first time in over 20 years? First off, um, hats off to Mike Tanay. This was when Mike Tanay was at his absolute best. Yep. Especially in a three man booth like we had. Um, Mike would pick his shots. He knew when to come in with background and history and context, because we all know context is fucking king. And he would, he would slide in and just fill you with the right information at the right time and slide out and let play by play cover and let, you know, color cover. It was, he was absolutely, he was so good. So good. That's my first impression, you know, going back and having not watched this in 20 some odd years, that was my first impression. Second impression was, you know, Ray, Ultimo Dragon, the cruiserweight division, still to this day, when I watch that match, I just, I shake my head. And I know that, you know, the athleticism, you know, since that time, we've seen matches now with just amazing athleticism and the Kenny Omegas of the world and and, and, and others like him. Um, I know that technically, athletically, the talent has gotten so much better just across the board. But if you go back and look at this point in time and you look at that match and you see the impact that that match and matches like it had on the industry overall, I, I think it speaks volumes to, to their skill and ability and to what we did on Nitro to change the way the product was being presented. I don't know that the crowd was as into it, but man, what a fucking match they had. And no, and the crowd wouldn't have got into it. That's one thing, you know, and I'm, I don't mean to get ahead of you, Conrad, um, cause I know you have your, <clears throat> your questions, but that's the one thing that almost immediately impressed me when I first started watching this is, you know, what we, we talked earlier about, you know, what do you gain by going, you know, and possibly attracting, you know, Chevy and Dodge and Ford and Jack Daniels and Miller and Coors and blah, 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 Levi's, you know, all the you know companies that spend a fortune on Sturgis every year, if you're, but you're giving it up in the gate. The other thing that we gave up much like we did when we went to Disney MGM studios and this was, it, it was obvious to me right away is the crowd that was there. They were digging what they were seeing, but they didn't know who Ray was. They didn't know who the ultimate dragon was. They certainly didn't know any storylines. They weren't really into the issues. They were just into the action. And the, the action here was great for us. Wrestling fans, phenomenal, you know, on a scale of one to 10, maybe a nine. Um, but the audience, it was just a little over their head and you could tell by the, the lack of re- real reaction from them. 
Well, I mean, you guys knew what to do to get them to react. Let's get a Scott Norton ice train match going. And the next match, Scott Norton beats ice train by submission with a Fujiwara arm bar, five minutes and five seconds. Of course, the story here is that ice train comes out with a shoulder all taped up from an angle where the giant had beat him up earlier in the show. So Norton, of course, works that arm, the entire match Meltzer gives it one star. Uh, I guess we should remind everybody briefly. These guys were a tag team is fire and ice. And of course, Norton turned on ice train. It's hard to imagine this is on a pay-per-view and, uh, Arn Anderson and DDP and Bobby Eaton and the nasty boys and Conan they're on the undercard. Why did this match make the main card? <sighs> Horseshit booking. <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. At least we're honest. Uh, what'd you think of the match? Scott Norton and ice train. It, that one hurt me to watch because I, I liked ice train a lot as a person and Scott Norton and I are still really, really good friends to this day. And it wasn't the best showing for either one of them. It, it, it was a, it was a really poor showing for them. So, you know, watching it back again, because Scott and I are, are still friends to this day. I'm like, Oh man, I wish, <laughs> I wish I could say something nicer about it than, than I can, but it, it was, it was a bad match. Let's talk about the next match here. Um, well, I guess we should mention, we briefly see a recap of a sit down interview with Ric Flair and you guys are really pushing and this aired on Saturday night, but you're airing it again on the pay-per-view. You're really pushing the Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair match, which is going to be a clash of the champions. Why was clash of the champions pushed so hard at this pay-per-view? Do you recall? Well, because it was a, you know, we were a television company clash of the champions was a TBS product. And our mandate was to get the highest ratings we possibly could for the networks we were on. So, I mean, it's nothing more complex than that. I do want to say though, that interview, I mean, Rick has, Rick has done more interviews that, that he'll never be able to remember that were as good as this. But this was one of the best. It was great. I agree. I, 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 it was so fucking believable. Yeah, it felt. Real. I mean, it. I mean, th- this is this is the kind of interview that makes Ric Flair as special as he is, because he wasn't cutting a wrestling promo. He wasn't doing the formula. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't yelling. He was n- not over the top. He was speaking from the heart and he believed so much of what he was saying, you know, method actors, you know, actors who really immerse themselves in their characters and spend days or weeks or sometimes months preparing for a major movie role, literally become the characters that, that they're portraying. And I think not to go over the top with this too much, but that's one of the things that I think made Rick so amazing is it was easy for him to make himself believe the things that he was saying in a way that when you heard him say them, you believed them. It was real. And, and he was able to break that wall between, oh, yeah, I know this is fucking wrestling and, oh, yeah, it's all scripted and this is entertainment and these guys are really, you know, when they're done beating the fuck out of each other, they're going to go have a beer at a titty bar after. But when Rick would do an interview like this, you actually went, yeah, but, you know, I know the rest of that shit is horse shit, but 
Rick really believes what he's saying. And this interview, I think, was one of the best that I've seen in a long time to really bring that home. So let's talk a little bit about the next match, because this is one that Tony Schiavone certainly had a lot of fun with. We've got Bull Nakano and Medusa, and these guys both have their bikes there and they're showing that bull has a Honda, of course, and that's going to get booze from this crowd. And Medusa rides out on her Harley Davidson. And I guess we should mention here, Sonny Ono, who's all over this show has quite the look here. And we haven't talked about his wardrobe, so I'm sure we'll get to it. (laughs) What'd you think of this Medusa bull Nakano match? I mean, this is a match these girls have done or these ladies had done in the WWE and now they're doing it here. It is a good match, but in front of this crowd and with this gimmick, it feels a little amiss. What'd you think? I don't know why you thought it felt amiss. Before I talk about the match, I want to talk about the ride from Minneapolis all the way to Sturgis because Medusa drove. And when I say she, she didn't drive, she rode. And when I say she rode, she rode that pick and black Harley all the way from the Mall of America to Sturgis. Now, I had the good fortune of riding right behind her. And I just want to tell you, when Medusa decides to ride that Harley, she really enjoys it. And the view from behind is spectacular. My goodness. Just for the record. Is it, are we about to do a blue chew out here? It feels like you're teeing one up. I, no, I, I, no, no, there was, there was, there was no blue chew necessary at that point, but I got, I just got to tell you, and, and Medusa's, you know, I dig Medusa. She's a good friend. She's a friend of my family. She's a friend of my wife's, but I'm just going to tell you, if you ever have the good fortune to ride behind Medusa as she is riding her Harley, do not pass that fucking moment up. So just so I'm clear. This is like 600 miles on a motorcycle you're talking about. She loves to ride her Harley. Okay. I'm going to just let, let that one lie. Uh, let's talk about Sonny Ono's. Look here. <laughs> She's going to kill me and her husband's going to really want to kill me, but Hey, whatever. What about Sonny Ono? Is his husband going to want to kill you? Tell us about his outfit. Uh, Sonny is goofy as fuck here's what i said first of all i don't know where sunny came up with that shit right it's not like we had a wardrobe department everybody pretty much gimmick themselves up you know what i mean it, it just was what it was and the thing that i noticed the most though and again sunny and i to this day we're extremely tight but i'm listening to sunny you know talking into the hard camera and he's, he's faking. First of all, he's got a Japanese accent. The motherfucker grew up in Tokyo. He sounds Japanese when he's just talking, but he's going over the top and he's trying to fake a Japanese accent and to be Japanese with a Japanese accent, trying to fake a G- Japanese accent. is just like silly as hell, but it was funny. I mean, the, the, between that and his, his goofy outfit and, and his antics, I, I, I thought he was entertaining. What'd you think of this match? Meltzer only gave it a star and a half. And of course the ruling here is, um, well, you know, Medusa wins and then there's these sledgehammers and we're supposed to attack a bike. Of course, Medusa jumps out of the ring, gets the sledgehammer and starts smashing bulls Honda a little bit. What'd you think? 
I think she probably got more blown up trying to smash up that Honda with a 15 pound sledgehammer than she did during the match. First of all, that made me, you know, when I watched that the other day, because I, I did it on twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks, we did a little watch along, and I'm watching that and I'm going, motherfucker, she's whacking the shit out of that, that Honda, and that Honda's holding up. Made me want to go buy a Honda. I mean, she she worked really hard just to get a couple pieces of plastic off that bike. Um, the match itself, I you know, I thought it was pretty good. The crowd got into it. And, yeah, the match had happened before. And, you know, all, all the hardcore wrestling fans and the, you know, the dirt sheet writers or readers all knew about it. But, you know, that audience, and here's the difference, you know, and this is where – and I understand the, you know, the star thing. Look, Dave wants to give something five stars or one star or three stars or whatever. That's a subjective opinion based on what he appreciates and what he likes or, or his fans do or readers, I should say. Um, but it's all subjective. And when I watch a match, I, I watch the match, but more than that, I listen to the crowd. Because I don't give a fuck if I think the match sucks. If the audience loves it, I love it. If I think it's a great match, but the audience hates it, I fucking hate it. So I, I don't get hung up on necessarily the quality as much as I get, uh, or the style, I should say, as much as I get hung up on how the crowd reacts. Right. That's the difference between, I think, you know, guys who write n- newsletters and guys who produce TV. You're, if you're producing TV, you're producing TV for the audience and, and a reaction from the audience. If you're writing a newsletter, you're trying to, you know, dissect something based on your subjective opinion. But the audience, if you go back and watch that match, the audience dug it. They got into it. They could understand it. You know, as simple as the match was, and it wasn't, you know, a super. I mean, I think, again, given the time and the context of women's wrestling at that time, it was a phenomenal match. Oh, no doubt. It was a great match by women's standards, you know, for decades to come. I mean, only until recently did you start to see really competitive women's matches presented on TV. I mean, for years after this, we got brawn panty stuff. I mean, so this is at least a real match and the fans were much more into it, but they may have been much more into it just comparatively to a fucking ice train match. (laughs) Well, and, and I think as nuanced as it may have been, the idea of, you know, Medusa riding in on her Harley and Bull riding in on a Honda with with Sonny Ono as a manager was kind of inherently interesting for that audience. So let's talk a little bit about um the the big match here that people still talk about. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko go to a couple of time limit draws and overtimes and I know we're going to talk about the match. Meltzer loved it. Uh, he gave it four and a quarter stars. He says in another setting with a different finish, it would have been a match of the year candidate. Of course the crowd, you know, they do lose them for part of this match, but they're into a lot of it. And there's a lot of great action, but it's really weird to watch this back though. At least from my perspective, because when Chris Benoit comes to the ring, he comes to the ring with woman and Liz and just knowing that everybody on screen right now is no longer with us. Holy shit. That's depressing. With the exception of Dean Malenko. Um, yeah, it was, and this has happened to me, you know, the last couple of times we've done this, where I've gone back and looked at shows and, 
and seeing people that are no longer here. And it's just, you know, it's, it's not like I don't know it, but when you see them in a way, cause to me in my mind, at least this, this pay-per-view was a hundred years ago. Right. Cause you know, I just, I, I don't live in the past. I don't think about things after they happen. I don't, I, I don't have pictures of, of things. I mean, I, I actually have to work really hard to try to remind myself of things that have happened in the past because I just, I don't live in it. I just don't live in it. I don't have pictures in my house of wrestling moments or anything. So when I see something like this pay-per-view in one way, it seems like it happened a hundred years ago, but in other ways, it seems like it was just about a week ago because so much of it is so familiar and it comes back to me in such a strong way in a, in, in a powerfully emotional way in some respects. And when I, when I'm watching Chris and, and Dean, and as you pointed out, Liz and um, woman, it's just so fucking hard for me to believe everything that has happened since then. Because it does, in that respect, it seems like, God, this was just five minutes ago. It was a week ago. Even though it wasn't. It was 20-something years ago. But it doesn't feel that way emotionally. So you're right. When I see it, it's like it just takes my breath away for a moment. i got to really get my head straight when I watch it. And the match, you know, and this is, again, contrasting what I said earlier about the Bull Nakano Medusa match, you know, you know, Dave didn't like it. He gave it like a one and a quarter stars. Where the fuck he did? I don't care. Whatever. But the, but the audience loved it. The audience dug it. They were entertained, which is what our job is, by the way. Our job is to entertain the audience, not to entertain Dave Meltzer or people like him. This match... Dave gave it what four and a quarter stars or whatever the whatever his gimmick rating is. I thought watching it back, the audience was dead. They didn't care. Well, they they popped for the one restart, but not the second one. It, they didn't. They, if you, I mean, that first of all, the motherfucker took forever. It seemed like I was you know, commenting on Twitch TV. It's like, oh my god, this is like this is a long match, and I'm not taking anything away from it. I'll, I'll agree if this match would have happened you know, in Chicago or in Madison Square Garden or somewhere else with a, a more sophisticated wrestling audience that was more knowledgeable about the storylines and the characters, the match would have gotten over much better. But in front of this particular crowd, that match was dead. They were dead. They may have popped for a beat or two, but out of the 30 minutes that this this match took, they were dead for 28 of it. You know, listen, I know this sounds weird, but it does feel like the matches that got heat where, where it was either a big star, like a Hulk Hogan or, or a Ric Flair, or there was, <laughs> well, let's talk about the Harlem heat thing for a minute. There's been lots of speculation, rumor and innuendo, if you will, that some of the folks in the crowd were pretty vulgar towards the Harlem heat. And you can imagine what that might be. And the perception amongst a lot of non motorcycle fans or riders or whatever is that occasionally some folk of that ilk motorcycle gang type folks are a tad racist wow um and the harlem heat have over the years said that they were called everything but their name that night did you hear about any any sort of I mean, even during the Rey Mysterio Ultimo Dragon match, they're chanting USA, which is just fucking silly. But 
talk me through the Harlem heat situation. What you heard, what you didn't hear any of that stuff, you know, going back, um, neither, you know, Booker or Stevie came to me and said, Oh my God, you know, people are saying horrible shit to me either before or after the match. Cause that's just not who they are. Um, I'm sure they probably heard things at ringside that were inappropriate. Uh, and I'm sure it wasn't the first time that they they've ever heard things like that. I, I, I take exception a little bit to the generalization that people of the, as you put it, biker gang type, um, are racist. You know, I, when I was in Sturgis, and I'm going to preface this for, for people that don't know, most people probably do that follow or listen, but I, I was born in Detroit. I lived there till I was 14 or 15 years old. I lived through the 68 riots. And when I say I lived through them, I mean, I watched them from my garage, you know, buildings being burned. I watched uh, on television, you know, national guard tanks, you know, rolling down the street and literally flattening houses. Um, so I, I know what racism is. I've grown up in it. When I left Pittsburgh, I moved to Pittsburgh. Or excuse me, when I left Detroit, I moved to Pittsburgh and, and saw much of the same. So it's not like I don't know what, what racism is and, and, and I'm naive enough to think that it doesn't exist. That being said, you know, there's such a – and I think this is so true even today. And I think it's probably more true today than it's ever been. People are so quick to judge groups or others that either don't socialize with them or think exactly like them or hang with them. They judge them very, very specifically. You know, I went to Sturgis with a perception and I, I touched on it, you know, hot fucking naked chicks, crazy shit, you know, Mardi Gras steroids, you know, all this stuff. And when you get there, what you realize, you know, if there's 300,000, you know, Bikers, and I use the word bike. I hate to even say the word bikers. If there's 300,000 people on motorcycles there, probably 280,000 of them are doctors, lawyers, and engineers, and people that have discretionary incomes that it gives themselves the ability to drive a thirty-five or forty thousand dollar motorcycle. Oh, and by the way, they trailer it on the back of a hundred and sixty or hundred and eighty thousand dollar motorhome all the way from wherever they live, and they park it there, and they dress up like, you know, what they perceive a biker to look like, and they grow out their beards, and they put on their Tony Schiavone fake tattoos, and they drive around, and they drink beer, and they kind of look like the perception of what a biker looks like but the majority of them are very high functioning civilized normal people that you would you know doctors lawyers attorneys and engineers yeah you have a small percentage of them that are what i'll call a hardcore biker that really live the lifestyle 365 days a week but guess what they don't come to events like this they, they're they're on the outskirts of town. They're doing their own thing. They want to be left alone. They don't want law enforcement to fuck with them. They just they just they go there to ride and do their own shit. The majority of people there are just like the people that you work with every day. Mortgage bankers for crying out loud, because they're the ones that can afford the the toys. You know, you see guys riding through, you know, Sturgis and I, you know, you can, you can go on Sturgis.com or SturgisLive.com, whatever the website is in another week or so and see people riding into Sturgis and they're all on 40 and 50 and 60 and 70, $70,000 motorcycles for crying out loud. So it's, it's not as 
rough and and crude and socially backward of a of a group of people as some people like to portray them to be. That being said, like I said, do 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 I think there was some inappropriate shit being said? Of course. You're surrounded, you know, you get a bunch of people there that are partying, that are drinking, just like you would in Mardi Gras, which happens in the South. Um, and and you would have stupid shit being said there just as probably just as freely. The point I was making about the dead crowd a minute ago is that, you know, these are casual wrestling fans at best. They're only gonna know the big stars by and large, and then the way they identify who to boo and who to cheer is, you know, who's the white American. I'm going to cheer him. And I don't, I don't know. But if you, uh, I understand why you would say that. And I'm, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I'm, I'm not stupid. I mean, I, I understand Pe- people are flawed, <laughs> but if you look at it from another angle and not just immediately jump to the racial thing, you also had Scott and Rick Steiner, who are about as blue collar as you could possibly be, especially Scott. Scott was jacked to the fucking gills, probably at the peak of his of, of his career and his his athletic ability. And Scott Steiner represented what every one of those people on motorcycles wish they could be. And and I think that had something to do with it. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. But I'm not suggesting that there weren't people there that were going, "Oh fuck, these are white, you know, big strong white guys," and and uh, here's these, you know, black guys. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I can't get into everybody's head, sure. but I'm also saying that the Steiners kind of represented blue collar America. You know, if, if there was ever a living, breathing. Uh, definition of what probably ever every biker in Sturgis wished they could be, it would have been Scott Steiner at that moment. Let me ask you, is this the first Sturgis you had been to, or how many times had you been to Sturgis for this bike rally? This was the first one. When you were there, I'm not asking this to be funny. I'm asking a real question. I've never been. I'm never going. What's the white folk, black folk ratio? 85% white, more, less? <sighs> I would say that or more. Okay. Let's talk about the match. Um, the, the fans are into it. It's probably got the most heat of any match there. Um, whatever two and three quarter stars is the rating. And this was a fun match to watch because the crowd is into it basically for the first time of the night or so it feels, uh, to this level. What'd you think? I agreed. I mean, this is when, you know, if you go back and you watch the show, this is the first time. Um, I mean, I thought up until this point, the Medusa Bull match was the hottest probably crowd reaction that we got. Um, but at this point, that's when you, you know, everybody started getting on their Harleys and revving up their motors, you know, which is their way of cheering, by the way. Um, and it got pretty loud, pretty crazy and pretty intense. And I thought it was awesome. No doubt. Let's talk about the next match. Ric Flair, Eddie Guerrero. You expect these guys to have a good match and they do. They go three and a half stars. You get all your signature flair spots, uh, the chops, the slam off the top rope. He of course never hits that, but Guerrero does hit the frog splash, but he starts to sell it as if his knee has gone out. Of course, flair puts on the figure four woman helps add a little leverage from the outside and Guerrero passes out from the pain. So Flair gets the win to retain his United States title three and a half stars. 
uh, Rick won the world title or the United States title the prior month at Bash at the Beach. And this is the first time he's not really in the world title conversation. And instead he's in the U S title conversation, but we're building towards Hogan flair. Are you trying to just rev him up here to take on Hogan? Because it does feel a little bit like he's a heel he's cheating. He's got a manager helping him cheat, blah, 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 but he's going to take on the heel Hulk Hogan. Next. We're really starting to get into the, the colors of gray here instead of the traditional wrestling, good guys and bad guys, because now we're making it a promotional war of sorts, WCW with the heel four horsemen taking on the heel NWO led by Hulk Hogan, chat me up about the match. And then how you guys were trying to use this as a springboard for the clash of the champions. Well, I mean, you did a good job setting that up. It really was. We were setting up the company versus company, you know, the WCW versus the NWO going back to Flair's interview earlier on in the show. He did, you know, that's what he, I think he did such a phenomenal job making that sound believable. And yeah, I mean, it was, you look, one of the problems that I've always had with Flair, um, well, I say problem. I mean, it was a challenge Rick. And I think he, I don't know, you know, I know you did a show with him for quite a while, I don't know if you and he ever talked about it, but Rick was always more comfortable being a heel because heels are in control. You know, baby faces are so dependent upon a heel in so many different ways throughout the course of a match. A heel can be very, very much in control, especially a seasoned one like Rick. So that was Rick's comfort zone. And it was really difficult to try to get him out of that comfort zone. We needed Rick to be the kind of, lead face, if you will, the lead man, the hood ornament, however you want to say it, for the WCW audience in their battle against the NWO from a creative kind of architecture. That was really important, but it was challenging because Rick needed to be a heel or wanted to be a heel or was at his best as a heel. Asking Rick to play a babyface character because of the role that he was taking as the lead in the WCW versus NWO thing, it would have meant that we would have gotten about 75% of Ric Flair or less. Um, so it was challenging. It was a balancing act. We were, we were threading a creative needle, but I think it worked here. And the, the, the goal in this particular match was to reconnect Ric Flair with his WCW audience, the legacy audience that remembered him for so long you know, from the Crockett days and the early WCW days because of his basic ability to have a phenomenal match. And with a guy like Eddie Guerrero, we knew that that could happen. Even though he was a heel, we wanted to reestablish him with that, you know, traditional WCW wrestling audience that recognized Rick for being as great as he was for what he was capable of doing in the ring. Pretty good match, you know, two of the all-time greats, two bona fide Hall of Famers to be sure. Uh, and it told a fun story. I want to ask a question about belts here for a minute, because I noticed, I don't know exactly when the change happened, but somewhere during your reign here, you guys stop using Reggie parks and you start using Joe Marshall. Of course, the cruiserweight title that was on the line in the Mysterio match and the United States title were both made by Joe Marshall. I'm sure that's not something you're involved with, but who with the company in your estimation would have been the person to help sort of handle belt designs and ordering of belts and things like that? Oh, I would have to point to David Crockett would be my first stop along the way. Um, yeah, I'd say David Crockett. 
Let's talk about our next match. We've got the outsiders who were uh, super hot here, but I don't know that the crowd really knew who they were. They're taking on Lex Luger and sting who get, uh, quite the pyro presentation here, uh, in a couple of different phases. Sting is at his colorful best here with multicolored tights and a crazy jacket. Uh, they go about 14 and a half minutes. Meltzer's pretty disappointed. He says, after all the hype, this match didn't have much heat. Wasn't very intense. And the announcers, after building it up so big, dropped the ball and making it seem important. Um, he gives it a star and a half. But the thing of note out of this, at least to me, is this is the first time we really see a heel referee, Nick Patrick. Um, he takes a bit of a bump and then pretends to fall, but it's very clear that he is intentionally leg diving uh, throwing a shoulder into the back of Lex Luger's knee, which allows Scott Hall to get the pin. And it's the first time we see that there may be, you know, a rat within the officiating commission for the, uh, for the NWO. What'd you think of the match and the finish? Because while Meltzer didn't necessarily love it, I thought it was pretty clever. The, again, this, I, I kind of fell into the same category as Dean and and Chris, even though I got the pyro, Sting was Sting, Luger's Luger, and obviously Luger looked great. Um, they didn't know the outsiders. Again, this this crowd wasn't a hardcore wrestling crowd. They weren't watching our show every week. I'm sure some of them knew who some of the characters were, and some of them may have even known what the storylines were. But for the most part, they were just there to see a spectacle, and that's what they got. And the reaction was predictable as a result of that um as far as nick patrick goes i i think it was a good idea to and again you know the nwo thing was so new the idea of splitting the nwo and wcw was still a new idea that was in its infancy at least in my mind and, and in the mind of others as we were going and i think it was a good idea but i think it was probably too early to do it you know, the not only this audience, but I don't think any part of our audience was ready for that kind of a thing quite yet. The, the NWO and its psychology and its branding really wasn't mature enough yet, and we, we jumped the gun with that. Next up, we've got what we're really here for. It's the world title match. We've got the Giant defending his world title against Hollywood Hulk Hogan. They're going to go 14 minutes and 55 seconds before Hogan gets the win. Hogan's cheered here and fans are chanting for him because again, they don't know he's a bad guy. Um, Meltzer would write or because they love bad guys could yeah. have been, could have been either way or both. Either one. If they wanted him to be booed, he should have been black. Hogan looked to be about 60. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you're saying all bikers are racist. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying this crowd came alive when the Harlem heat came out. That's what I'm saying. No. And then, so, so you're saying if, if the only way Hulk Hogan would have gotten booed is if he was black, I'm saying it would have helped huh. getting booed. Good cover. Okay. Keep going. Uh, quote, Hogan was cheered and the fans were chanting for him as they had no idea about the H heel turn. Hogan looked to be about 60 years old as he had obviously dieted down so much for his birthday that his face was drawn and the sun made his body look real old. Hogan stalled early and basically did heel sixties tactics. All the offense by Hogan looked awful and he didn't bump as a heel. So that kills the idea. 
Hogan does, or giant does the Hogan Superman comeback in one of the campiest spots ever in a wrestling match. It was like watching the worst movie ever made or the worst wrestling match. Well, between the triple decker cage contraption earlier this year and warrior gold dust, this match is luckily eliminated for worst match of the year considerations, but would be up there in another year. The campiest part of all was giant doing the Hogan foot to the face and missing it by a foot. Uh, you know, what's coming here. There's a little bit of interference. Hogan eventually gets the win. It gets a negative star and a half from Dave Meltzer. It's not the best performance. It is a little cheesy to see the giant Hulk up, but what I think everybody remembers about this is what happens afterwards. Uh, so tell me about the match and what you remember, and then we'll talk about the post-match. You know, giant was still pretty new, pretty green, and he was following Hulk's lead as best he could. I mean, it was what it was. It, it was campy. It was corny. It, it was, <laughs> it was not the best showing for either one of them. Is it fair to say here that Hogan had not yet really mastered him, his work as a heel? Obviously he's going to go on to, to add to, but he's really freshly into a heel. And it, when I watch this back, it feels like he's still trying to figure it out because it had been so long since he had been a bad guy. I, I think that's fair. You know, and if you, I mean, I think that's a good observation on your part too. I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, July, whatever it was, seventh of the following month, he, you know, came out in the red and yellow and dropped the big leg on Randy Savage. He hadn't really done a lot in the ring since that time until this little bit. Right. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's no different than Ric Flair or, I mean, look at triple H and and I'm going to, and I'm not doing this to, you know, not being a smart ass here, but if you go back and you look at triple H, you know, when he was a heel and you look at triple H when he was a baby face, what's the difference? When you watch a Triple H match as a heel and when you watch Triple H as a baby, let's, let's start out by looking at his entrance. Can 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 anyone really distinguish a Triple H, Triple H babyface entrance from a Triple H heel entrance? No. You can't. Can anybody really distinguish in any meaningful way the psychology or the way Triple H worked as a heel versus the way he worked as a babyface? Okay. And I think my, my point is that I think when guys reach a certain level and they get really comfortable working a certain way, they're almost on auto, autopilot yeah. when they get out there in front of that crowd because there is no script. You know, and unless you're really aware, you kind of go with what you know and you're reacting. The, the, the beauty of wrestling, I think, in some respects, in many respects, is that the people that are really great at it, I mean really great at it, not just for the athleticism that we're seeing today in the AJ Styles and the Kenny Omegas and, you know, in my opinion, Dolph Ziggler's and other people like them, but when you see a Ric Flair or a Ricky Steamboat or a Hulk Hogan in his prime, um, they're just reacting to the crowd and they're almost ad-libbing and improvising. The downside of that is you tend to get into a rhythm and you go to with what you know. And I think to your point, and I think it's a really astute one, I don't think Hulk was ready to be a heel yet. Right. I mean, he knew he was being one, but I don't think his psychology in the ring quite caught up with the time. 
he he wasn't quite ready yet, and it it was awkward and it was cumbersome. And the fact that Giant was green and limited, um, that he didn't have a lot of psychology or confidence, um, didn't help. So the combination was eh, yeah, at best. And and the deal is, I know people are gonna, and I've already been accused of this, and I'll just admit to it. I'm a giant Hulk Hogan mark, and I think he's arguably the best babyface of all time, and arguably the best heel of all time too. I mean, a guy who could do both like that, like. Like you said earlier, Flair, one of the greatest heels of all time, but as a baby face, eh, and I could do that with sting. Sting should be a baby face, not necessarily a heel and stone cold should be a good guy, not necessarily a bad guy. And I just have characters. I prefer strongly one way or another, but with Hogan, you know, NWO playing air guitar, I'm great with, and real American Hulk Hogan. I'm great with, but I do think that he had still probably here, not quite put it together yet but it didn't matter because the visual you wanted is the post-match antics and you've got brutus the fucking barber beefcake coming out oh god damn you (laughs) with a fucking birthday cake and um they're gonna wish him happy birthday and hulk does like a godfather kiss almost uh both cheeks for ed leslie and then you know turns on him and him and the nwo take turns beating him up and he uses this as a way to cut a promo on flair flair. If I'll do this to my best friend. And of course, Leslie puts over, Oh, you've been there for me for 22 years, brother. So you know, what's coming, that it's going to be a turn and and it happens. And it's a way to sort of get over. If I could do this to my best friend, what will I do to you? Rick flair, really hard selling. But then the real moment is when they spray paint the belt and this is one of the signature moves of the NWO and it pissed a lot of old school folks off who thought that that belt represented the NWA and the national wrestling Alliance and the tradition of the funks and the Briscoes and Harley race and dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair and Ricky steamboat. And now Hulk Hogan, the New York guy is spray painting on their belt. Whose idea was this? What can you tell us about it? Because it is one of the most iconic moments in WCW history. It was improv. Scott and Kevin and I, Kevin and I mostly, we're talking about that today. There was no like master plan to pull that off. I think that, you know there was some um, discussion about it beforehand. Let's make sure we got some black paint handy. We we talked about it a little bit, but it wasn't like for three weeks we talked about it, and I loved it. And you know what? To this day, I, I signed autographs for four hours today. I can't tell you the number of big gold belts with the NWO logo sprayed on sprayed on it that I was asked to sign today. And the fact that, you know, so many of those, you know, Terry Funk, Dusty Rose, Jack Briscoe, you know, Jerry Briscoe, NWA um, fans were just completely offended by it, made it work. That was the essence. That was the premise, if you will, of the NWO versus WCW. That was the beginning of what was intended to be initially a brand split. And it worked amazingly. And to this day, 22 years later, people still carry those belts around. And WWE is still manufacturing them and selling them. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been signing them. So the, the fact that 22 years later, that moment still resonates speaks volumes about the decision and the choice to do it. Was there any concern? And, and obviously I'm a belt fan and that's the reason I asked me belt questions, but was there any concern as you guys sort of freestyle and you spray paint the belt? What if this shit doesn't come off or was the idea? Well, fuck it. We'll just make another one. Who cares? It would have been the latter. Yeah. That's what I imagine. 
Well, listen, this is an entertaining show because there's so much to discuss about, you know, the business decision to run a show where no tickets are sold. And it is a bit of a logistical nightmare because it's outdoors and there could be a weather event and you've got motorcycles there. And there's just lots of interesting stuff about this show. I mean, there's rumors that fans were throwing gravel in the ring and, you know, there's obviously alcohol's flowing. Do you have any sort of weird or fun or interesting sort of freak show, sideshow, Sturgis stories you could share with us? <laughs> yeah. The, I, I mean, like, it, what comes to my mind is, you, you know, you and I were talking about this a little bit in the beginning of this is because I had never been to Sturgis and there was this perception. Cause you know, when you look at like motorcycle magazines, like, you know, V twin or easy rider or any number of magazines that you would, especially back then, you know, I don't look at them anymore, but you know, back then, you know, when you had an hour or two to kill at the airport, you'd go to the local bookstore and at the airport and, you know, look at the magazine rack. And I'd always pick up, you know, different magazines. One of them was almost always an easy rider or a V twin. And you'd always see these, you know, really hot chicks and scantily clad and straddling these motorcycles. And, you'd, you know, every year, you know, when there was a Sturgis event, you know, the month after you'd go and you'd look at all the crazy, wild, sexy, hot pictures of, you know, the parties going on at Sturgis. So when we were going out there, I was like, eh, you know, I'm married. I got kids, but I still, you know, I'm red-blooded American guy. I'm not not dead. So I'm kind of looking forward to some of this, you know, crazy, wacky Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras meets motorcycle mania kind of shit going on. And when I got there, you know, one of the <laughs> one of the first days, I'm sitting down, and I was with my wife. We're, we're in Sturgis, and we we had our kids with us, you know, and our assistant Janie Engel, you know, helped take care of our kids and stuff. But we go downtown just to go sightseeing and see the freak show, you know, because Sturgis is a very small town. It's only about eight blocks long. And there's just tens of thousands of motorcycles and people on them going up and down the street. So it's like a parade of freak show. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking for these, you know, hot V twin, you know, easy rider cover girl kind of half naked chicks on bikes. And what you get are like these 250 pound fat chicks with hair on their back you know, in a thong with a prono pup stuck on a stick, sticking out of the back of their ass, riding down the middle of the street on a Harley. And it's, it, it, it pops, it, it bursts your illusion. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So if you're going to Vegas and you're looking for a good time, you want to see a lot of really cool bikes, by all means go, go. But if you're, if you're going there looking for the hot chicks on bikes, eh, you might want to stay home. They ain't any. He is E. Bischoff. I am Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.